The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I saw my students hugely improve. Mostly, mostly, you know, uh, a lot of Hispanic and, Latin and, and, and Black American students who would just overnight turn into great English students. And I would just see this amazing love for literature and reading mm-hmm. and and this and poetry. I mean, I had kids who were they you know gang 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 kids. And I would I I once took them to a play. I, I would take them to a lot of plays. I took them a play that was all based on love letters of romantics in the 19th century. You couldn't be more alien from the African American experience from the 19th century romantics from England, right? Yeah. But these kids. They would line up at my door, because I, I had run off copies of the poems from the play. They would line up at my door, begging me to make Xerox copies of these for them. Yeah. They were so into poetry. And I just thought it, I, it was a unique position for me to be a person well-versed in the classics, but teaching African-American and, and English, English learners and seeing it just light up their minds. Yeah. It was so clear to me that performance skills really profoundly increase cognition and empathy. Mm, that's Robin Lithgow, whose life has taken her from a childhood in the theater to a role as an educator, an arts administrator, an author, and an advocate. She's here today as our guest to talk about what she's learned about Shakespeare's education, the importance of the performing arts to a child's development, and the connections she's made between the 16th century children in English grammar schools and the 20th and 21st century students in the inner city schools of Los Angeles. And we'll hear some rich anecdotes about her life as the daughter of a famous Shakespeare impresario, Arthur Lithgow, whose love for Shakespeare led to her and her family, including her brother, John Lithgow, to years of traveling around Ohio as their father staged every play in the Shakespearean canon. All that today on the History of Literature. Hey, mm-hmm. here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Wow. What a day. What a day this is. You are in for a treat. I want to tell you how all this began. It's a great story, and today's guest is a lot of fun. You will appreciate her energy, I think. She's an amazing woman. I learned a lot from her. I knew about Erasmus, and I knew about Shakespeare, of course, but I didn't know about the strong connection between the two. You will hear about that in a moment. So, I think we can thank Amelia Lanyer. For today's episode, you may recall the episode we did. It was number three on our list of Forgotten Women of Literature, which was our Thursday theme for September. It took us to the world of Amelia Lanyer, the daughter of a, an Italian musician, a Venetian, in fact, who wound up in the court of the Queen of England. After he died, his daughter Amelia was raised by a woman with a strong belief in education. And so Amelia received an education as good as what the boys received in those days— And she ended up becoming the first woman in England to write a major book of poetry, signed by her under her name. And there are some tantalizing suggestions that Amelia Bassano Lanier was, in fact, 
the Dark Lady of Shakespeare's sonnets. Agatha Christie assumed it was true, and if the Queen of Mystery has decided that a mystery is solved, well, who am I to say it's not? I'm half joking about that, but I will say I'm pretty convinced. I talk about all that in the episode. After that episode went out, I got a bunch of emails. I get a lot of emails, people. I try to keep up. Sometimes I fall behind by, by weeks or months, but this time I was pretty caught up and I responded quickly. The email was from a woman who was taking me to task for a mistake, demanding to know why I said in the episode that Shakespeare didn't know Latin. So a big, heavy sigh from Jack on this one. Big, heavy sigh, because whenever I make a mistake, I feel terrible and they're hard to correct on a podcast. It's not like a blog post that you can just correct in a few seconds by typing a few words. I have to let them live out there. Usually I can't redo live interviews. I can't easily pull down audio and insert corrections. If you talk for hundreds of hours off the top of your head, you're bound to make a few mistakes. And that's not even accounting for the guests who might make a slip of the tongue. And I usually get blamed for those mistakes too. <laughs> and that's why I'm not complaining. It comes with the territory. And that's why I hope people aren't using these episodes as primary sources. I have no editor or team of editors. You really should think of these as food for thought, inspiration for further study. But don't quote me for facts. It's too hard to speak from memory. Well, look, enough about that. That's just not what the podcast is for. So I get the email from this woman, Robin. Shakespeare didn't know Latin. Are you serious? And I think, yes, sure, Robin, my mistake. But then I think, wait, did I really say that? I might have, but wasn't I also talking about the anti-Stratfordians and their criticisms of Shakespeare? The people who claim that Shakespeare could not have been educated enough to write his plays. So I emailed back and said, I think I might have been channeling the voice of the Anti-Stratfordians, my mistake, sorry, and Robin very graciously said, ah, yes, I listened again, and you're right, you were. This Robin person was starting to grow on me, and then we emailed a few more times back and forth, and she happened to mention that her father had run the Antioch Shakespeare Festival in Ohio, and suddenly everything clicked into place for me. My goodness, how had I missed it before? Robin was Robin Lithgow, or Robin Lithgow was a Lithgow Lithgow. I had heard about her father, Arthur Lithgow, connected him with Antioch and these Shakespeare festivals because I had heard an interview with her brother, John Lithgow, the actor, where he had talked about it. Now, I hope everyone listening knows who John Lithgow is. If you're young, you might have grown up hearing him reading audiobooks, which he's done a lot of lately. My kids have listened to those. If you're my age, a child of the 80s, he's the father in Footloose, the minister who prevents the kids from dancing until he has a change of heart. That's John Lithgow and Diane Weist plays his wife. And if you rewatch that movie as an older person, as a parent, you will love both of them. They're amazing in that movie. Some might know him from the sitcom Third Rock from the Sun, and today some might know him as Winston Churchill from the Netflix series The Crown. He's one of the few Americans who can act Shakespeare on a par with the Brits. And when I heard him talk about his childhood in that interview, I understood why. He grew up immersed in theater, immersed in Shakespeare, watching the plays, watching his father direct them, watching the actors act them, absorbing everything there was to absorb. And I felt this kind of energy coming through the interview. And maybe I was supplying this too, at least in part, because I had my own 
Midwestern Shakespeare example to think of, which was the American Players Theater in a place called Spring Green outside of Madison, Wisconsin. It's an outdoor Shakespeare theater. You can go see plays there, rain or shine, hot or chilly, mosquitoes or, well, that's the only option for the mosquitoes. (laughs) They're going to be there no matter what. You wear repellent. But it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous theater. It's a gorgeous setting. The whole thing is simply fantastic. I wasn't immersed in it. I probably went once or twice a year from age 10 to age 18 or so. I wasn't the son of theater buffs let alone actors or directors. My parents were humble school teachers, but they liked theater and they wanted to expose my sister and me to Shakespeare, just like they wanted us to see the Grand Canyon and play in the school band and once in a while go out on the back step and look in the night sky at the stars. Things for development, ways to see the world. And those plays just floored me, the whole experience of it. I grew up surrounded by factories and farms, and there were all these things that I just didn't get. I didn't really get snowmobiles, and I didn't really get hunting. I did those things, but I didn't. I wasn't really a, an aficionado the way that my friends were. I liked sports, and I liked TV, and I liked reading. And when you're 14 or 15, and you haven't yet gone to college, and you're Somewhere you don't really fit, but you don't really know why, and you think, well, what kind of a life is this going to be? What am I? I'm the guy who stays home while everyone else goes deer hunting for two weeks. Is that who I am? And then I went to the play, the first one, Comedy of Errors, and I got it. I didn't understand much of the play, but I got the experience. I got what the people on the stage were doing. And I got what the people in the audience were doing there, and a whole world opened up for me. And so when I heard that John Lithgow had a childhood like that, where he saw that from an even younger age, and that magic was the magic that he had available to him, thanks to his parents and their devotion to the theater, I just thought, I get it. I get John Lithgow now. He's from Ohio, but he's not really from Ohio. He's from Shakespeare. And... He had and has a big sister, Robin. Now, I didn't know much about her, but as soon as she started emailing me about Amelia Lanyer and I could see the depth of her knowledge and her enthusiasm for the subject, I did some Googling and saw that she herself has led a fascinating life. So I invited her on the show to talk about her background and her experience and her interests and her discoveries about Shakespeare and his world. You'll hear all that. I think you'll enjoy it. She talks about John in a few places. My younger brother, John, which is just great. (laughs) I mean, here he is, John Lithgow, for crying out loud, and we're hearing from his big sister. It's fun. I have a big sister. Big sisters are awesome. And we talk about spouses, and we talk about parents, right? When we talk about writers and artists and other successful people. That's the most common thing. We talk about the support network supplied by a wife or a husband and how much those people do behind the scenes to make the success possible. And we talk about parents and how much they did to raise and shape and mold and encourage. But we forget about big sisters. Sometimes they're there too. And in this case, I think you'll feel that John was a lucky guy to have this big sister. I'm sure she wouldn't take credit for his success or anything like that. She's too modest. But just to travel through life, it seems like she's been a good big sister to have. And you'll hear a couple of moments in here that I think are going to really make you like this pair of Lithgos. Well, more than a couple. So let's do this. 
Let's hear a few listener emails, and then we'll get to our interview with Robin Lithgow. We had some audio issues at one point. We got cut off, so I've had to cut the interview into two parts. So we'll hear from some listeners, and then our two-part interview. First email is from Blake. Subject, thank you from New Orleans. Hey, Jack. I just wanted to drop a quick email to tell you how important your podcast has been for me this year. 2020 has been a tough time for many Americans, and I don't want to claim myself as exceptional, only to relate how crucial your podcast was for me personally. Between quarantine, losing my job, getting COVID, and trying to see any sort of future that wasn't bleak, I fell into frequent deep depression. But I started listening to your podcast daily while making skulls out of paper mache or drawing. And between creating my clumsy art and your frequently wise, often hilarious, and always warm take on various books and authors, it became far easier to see the brightness in the world. Apologies for that exceedingly long sentence. Listening to your podcast felt like sitting around with an old friend, drinking a beer, and talking about the books that we loved passionately. So, I'd like to thank you for keeping me company in these hard and lonely times, and I hope you do another 250 episodes. I would love to hear an episode or episodes on the writers and poets of the French decadence. Baudelaire, Rimbaud, perhaps even Heisman's. Fascinating writers who were fiercely devoted to literature, although Rimbaud was exceptional in this, as in other things. Maybe fan de siècle February? Thanks again, and be well, Blake. Well, Blake... Thank you for the email. It's wonderful to hear from you, although I am feeling your pain as well. 2020 is just one thing after another, isn't it? What's the Graham Greene line, the start to the third man, the novel version? One never knows when the hammer will fall. Well, now we know. It falls in 2020. Over and over and over. Fantasy Eclat February is a good idea. I'm intrigued. Although I think we're going to cover Baudelaire sooner than that, actually. I have him in mind for October. Our Thursday theme for October is going to be Edgar Allan Poe, the King of October. And there are five Thursdays. And I already did a sneak preview episode of Hop Frog, which would make six episodes. That's a lot of Poe, even for Poe. So I thought I might devote one of those episodes to Poe's great 19th century champion, Baudelaire. Because we've had a lot of requests for him, too. We will see. But I'm glad the podcast has been good company for you, Blake, in New Orleans. Keep making those skulls. (laughs) Is there any better vision of New Orleans than Blake listening to the History of Literature podcast while making skulls out of paper mache? I love it. I'm so sorry to hear that you got COVID and lost your job, but I'm glad that the podcast has helped keep you afloat. These are hard and lonely times for a lot of people, for sure. Hang in there, Blake. Here's a website comment we got from Daniel. I love, Daniel says, I enjoyed so much the T.S. Eliot podcast. That was my first experience with the history of literature. Truly wonderful. The background information was very helpful in understanding where Eliot was coming from. I would love if you would do a second podcast to further review the poem itself. It seems that you just got started. The poem is so dense that your insight would be greatly appreciated. Three exclamation marks. I first read The Wasteland a few years ago, but could not really understand such. With your insight, it became so much more meaningful. I could use some more help. Well, Daniel, thank you for the comment. I hear you on this. I know we could only scratch the surface. We could have spent 
10 minutes on a single line, probably add that up, we would have run out of time very quickly. I'm not sure when we'll return to the wasteland. I'm sort of inclined to do all of T.S. Eliot's other works. There are some really good ones we haven't covered at all yet, but we'll see. In the meantime, there are some annotated versions of the poem online that go line by line. I would recommend those. You see Eliot's footnotes and the explanations for those and scholarly footnotes, and it really lets you unpack the poem if you want to make a deep dive into it. It's like those translated works that are side by side on the page, which is my favorite way to read foreign poetry, by the way. Even languages I don't speak, you read the poems, hearing the music in your mind, even if you don't understand the words, and then you read the translation. It's a wonderful way to do it. Good luck to you, Daniel. Glad you enjoy the podcast, and I wish you all the best. And the last email or pair of emails comes from Thomas. Subject, your wonderful podcast. (laughs) <laughs> there's a there's a subject line that'll get me to open the email, people. Little tip for you emailers. Subject, your wonderful podcast. Hello, Jack. I'm Thomas, a nearly 16-year-old from Australia. I am a fairly new listener to the History of Literature podcast and found it while preparing for my year 10 Macbeth essay. Your incredibly engaging and fascinating insight into Shakespeare's greatest tragedy gave me an even greater appreciation for the play. And I would like to thank you for this. As an avid reader and lover of literature, I'd also like to thank you and the team for the effort you put into your art, because that's what it is. Art. The humor, the analyses, the insight, and the detail all contribute to the overarching greatness of this art. I listen to the podcast primarily while completing homework, playing video games, and riding my bike. While all of them excellent, my favorites of your episodes are those about Macbeth, the Brontes, Tolstoy, and Dostoevsky. I especially loved the little anecdote about Tolstoy's eventual appreciation for Dostoevsky. Your podcast has certainly been the cause of dozens of books being added to my list, and I'd like to thank you again for widening the scope of your listeners' book choices. If I may request, I would love for an episode to be made on either Edgar Allan Poe exclusively or Wuthering Heights exclusively, my personal favorite novel. Once again, Thank you for the immense effort and care you put into this fabulous podcast. Your listeners are sincerely grateful for your work. Yours, Thomas. Well, Thomas, your wish is my command on Edgar Allan Poe, a whole month of him coming up for October. We'll get plenty of Poe very soon. And then, before I could respond, I got a second email from Thomas, which I will share here as well. Subject, another. Hello, Jack. I wrote you an email of month or two ago, and the day after I sent it, I read it over and came to the confronting realization that it was, perhaps, the most generic email ever written. It was so boring, and I'm sorry for wasting your time. Let's hope this one's better. Your podcast has taken over my life. I simply can't get enough. Three months ago, music playing through my little earbuds accompanied me wherever I went, on bike rides, on public transport, whilst doing homework, and even whilst waiting for the phone to ring, at the declining fish and chip shop where I work. Nowadays, this music has been replaced by the history of literature. It was on one of those bike rides through the beautiful Australian landscape when I listened to the Sonnet 18 episode. I fell in love with the sonnet, the phrasing, the wording, the meaning. I like the ings. And I began to contemplate the value of literature. 
The written and spoken word can have such an effect on a human. Its ability to provide such significance in an individual's life captivates me constantly as I discover new texts. How is Shakespeare's sonnet, for example, able to invoke feelings of compassion and love in me? Simply, why is literature so good? This is what your podcast is to me personally, an exploration of this question. I also thought in this moment about how at school we've been forced to try and pick a career. I've had issues with this. There are so many options. Who am I to know what to do? But Jack, you have inspired me. I want to do what you do. I want to explore literature, and I want to talk about it. I want to devote my life to literature and my two other loves, history and geography, and so I want to be a high school teacher. Remember, I was having this mini epiphany on a cycle, and when I came to that realization, I slammed my brakes and looked up at my beloved blue sky. After 16 years, I had finally found my calling. The sudden stop caused the cyclist behind to nearly crash into me. Watch it, he said grumpily when he passed me, which was a bit of a slap in the face. Ha ha. But who cares? I have a direction now, Jack, and it's thanks to your podcast. Thank you. Not only this, but your podcast has been a great help to me in difficult times. As long as you make episodes, I will listen. Yours, Thomas. P.S. I won't request for an episode to be made. You have done more than enough for my family. My dad, Ron, has, as he puts it, found, quote, the light of the dark black night, end quote. Hmm. Ron sounds like a man after my own heart. The light of the dark black night sounds to me like someone who is as steeped in the Beatles as I am, if I am catching that reference to Blackbird. Thomas, there was nothing at all wrong with your first email, but your second email was extraordinary. Picturing you on the bike ride in Australia, having this epiphany, well... You're lucky to have found literature, but literature is also lucky to have found you. I hope you enjoy today's show. You are the kind of person that Robin was looking to inspire, and maybe someday you will inspire others as well. This is a beautiful thing. You can stop and look up at the beautiful blue sky and let the others swerve around you, muttering grumpily. If you look around you, you'll see Robin. Stopped on her bike, and Margot stopped on hers, and Mike stopped on his, and me stopped on mine, and so many others who found in literature the kind of beauty you're describing. Let the others go flying past, their heads down, on their way to all the getting and spending. We only get one chance at this. Once in a while, it's okay to embrace the sky. Okay, here we go. A quick break. And then we'll hear part one of the interview with Robin Lithgow after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Robin Lithgow, who was the first theater advisor and eventually the director of the arts education branch of the Los Angeles Unified School District, the second largest school district in America. Before that, she was a teacher for 21 years, teaching every grade level from kindergarten through senior high school and ending her classroom tenure as an English and drama teacher. And before that, she had a childhood immersed in the theater as her father, Arthur Lithgow, produced the entire Shakespearean canon in the 1950s and 60s. And as she and the rest of her family, including her brother, the acclaimed actor John Lithgow, followed their father from city to city as he established Shakespeare festivals throughout Ohio. She joins us today to talk about her life in the theater, her lifelong passion for Shakespeare and his works, and the role of the performing arts in a child's education. Robin Lithgow, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Okay, so we have so many great things to discuss here today. Why don't we start with your father, Arthur, who sounds like an incredible person. And here's what I know. He started in the Dominican Republic, landed in Ohio, and became a theater impresario. How did his interest in Shakespeare begin? Well, actually, he was only in the Dominican Republic a few years, a couple mm-hmm. of years. He, uh, his father died, not of the 1918 flu, but of complications that came after. So it was pneumonia, like in, in, uh, a couple of years later. Mm. And, and two of his siblings died. So it was quite a... He had three remaining siblings and, an, and a mother who was incredibly industrious and smart and well-read, brilliant woman, but unrecognized. She was, she was, she was a nurse. She was mm. from the nurse, first nursing school graduate year of Boston University, so back in 1905 or something. Mm. She was a nurse, and she borrowed money from the Unitarian Church and bought a house to rent as a nursing home. And my my grandma and her kids ran this nursing home. Mm. And so my dad was this kind of bookish, nerdy kid with this sad childhood. And he, he... he retreated into reading, mm. and he says that he just read all the works of Shakespeare, all the sonnets, all of the, you know, Rape of Lucrece and the long poems and all, yeah. and read them again and again up in the attic. Mm. 
Mm. And he would hide up there to, to avoid getting caught. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. AWOL. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he went to college, he started acting and um, loved it. Mm. And there's a funny story that uh, he told me just before he died, actually. Because he was the oldest son, his mother expected him to go to, he had a full scholarship again from the Unitarian Church to go to Antioch College, and he was a superstar there. And she expected him to graduate and get a position. That's what she called it, getting a position. And Antioch back then was on the work-study program, and they would send students out to do jobs during the year for one semester of each year. So it was a five-year program. And he had a internship at the Toledo Museum. And they offered to send him to Yale to get a master's degree in art history and to hire him as a curator. And Mm. he turned them down because he wanted to be an actor. And my grandmother just flipped. (laughs) And... And right. and he he felt guilty about it all his life because he was supposed to get a position and get the other kids through college, and instead he became an actor, which is not a position. <laughs> right. But did he he ultimately he had success at it? But were were there years where he was more of an itinerant actor? Well, he was very successful, but never monetarily. We we oh, never we were always okay. poor. Right. He started out in the Great Depression. And there was the WPA program, mm. Works Projects Administration, you know, Hallie Flanagan's theater program, uh, all throughout the country. So he was able to work when he went to New York. When that program ended, the war, he, he took a job teaching, and then the war started and he went into the Army. When he came out of the Army, he had the Veterans Bill, and he could get a master's degree at Cornell, and then he, Antioch asked him to come back and teach there. Mm. So he went back and right away started. He had already started a summer program there called the Antioch Area Theater. And so we would be there a couple of... I remember being there when I was two and three years old in the summers. But they asked him to come back and um, teach. Hmm. So when he went back to Antioch, he started the Antioch Shakespeare Festival. Those first five years of the Shakespeare Festival, he did every single play. Although Hmm. he condensed the three Henry VI plays into two. Right. I read that that was so uncommon that he was commended by the Queen of England herself for putting on the entire Shakespearean canon. Yeah, he was. Mm. He was. I mean, he did, I think he did maybe, there was one play, I think maybe Cymbeline, that he did the first North American professional production of it. So my guess is there were probably people coming from all over because some of these productions, it may have been their their first or their they might have thought it would be their only chance to see it uh, performed live. Yeah, well, what happened, I mean, he would get these wonderful actors from New York who were just dying to do classics. And it was a great experience for them because they would do seven or eight roles a summer. Now, how, how do you do that? You start out rehearsing on Wednesday morning, you dress rehearse Sunday night, you tech, you tech Sunday night, you dress rehearse Monday night, you open Tuesday night, you start rehearsing the next one Wednesday morning, and you do that for mm. eight weeks, which is a pretty rigorous schedule yeah. for an actor. Right. And yeah, he'd have to stagger them. So you didn't, you know, you'd play Othello one week and the third Huntsman <laughs> the next <laughs> week, you know. <laughs> um, and, and of course, they'd have to know their, at least their big roles way in advance. So they'd have to come prepared, uh, knowing the lines. Right. And then they rehearsed. They put in long hours. I don't know how they got away with it with equity, but 
They did, and um, it was an equity company, although they used a lot of local talent, too. Yeah. And so that started when I was eight, so by the time I was 13, I had seen every single play. And I would sit behind my my dad when he was directing. I just loved watching him direct. Mm. He was he didn't direct all of them, but when he directed, I would watch. Yeah. And sit next to him when he was putting on makeup and hang out with the actors and cue them. And I just it was just the best funnest thing you could do as a kid. <laughs> you know, yeah. And all the kids, actually, all the kids in town, we were like a, a little juvenile army. They all hung out around with the actors. It was the it was the it was the most happening thing in Southern Hawaii. Mm. Right, because you were you were were you on the stage or you were sort of gophers and well, if they if they needed a little body, I was always willing to <laughs> to mm-hmm. volunteer. I, I played the younger prince in Richard the Third, which I thought was a play about a man, uh, a very kind uncle with a hunchback, because <laughs> in the scene he, he says he's very kind to us, and my my younger brother John, who I think I must have been eight when I played that little boy with my page boy. My younger brother, John, would have been six, and he was furious that I got the part. (laughs) (laughs) And has since lied. He has actually said in an interview that he played for Young Prince. I called him up. I said, you dare. And he said, what do you expect me to do? (laughs) You robbed me of my first major role. But it was me, and I also, and of course, the two of us were fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, and oh, there right. were occasional ladies in mating in waiting when I got tall enough and things like that. Right. But, I, but he was the one who became the actor. And it sounds like there were different productions going up in different cities. Was your family in one location, or were you traveling from place to place, or what kind of a life was it? The Antioch Festival became a little bit too professional to be housed at a university, mm-hmm. and there was tension about that. And so my dad uh, resigned from a tenured position, which was kind of a shattering thing for our family. Yeah. And we went on the road, and, and the festival migrated first to Toledo, and then to Akron, always in Ohio, and then finally to Cleveland, where it's still going. The Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival is still going. Mm. I think, I mean, I... I think it is. The last I checked. Were you able to go to school? Was this just in the summers that you did this? Or was this kind of like a vagabond theater life? I went to five different high schools. Oh, wow. My older brother, I got a scholarship to a private school. So he wasn't subjected to the same kind of migration that we were. But John and I remember it it would be shattering each time we moved. But then we'd, we'd make friends and start over and then move again. And I remember sitting in the first couple of days in school in the middle of the semester, trying to make new friends, crying, mm. <laughs> my dad's crying. Right. But we always made friends. We always, and we found out that you can make friends everywhere. So that was yeah. a good skill. As yeah. far as academically, it was kind of a disaster. But we were, <laughs> I would say we were kind of homeschooled because yeah. my dad um, read to us every night from the classics and and, and no, we we just were on our own. I mean, my dad and mom were completely absorbed by the theater. But it, the theater is a great education, mm. which is kind of the point of my book. Yes, that theater was a huge part of Shakespeare's education, and I think that's why he was he and his entire generation were so smart. 
Right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I was going to ask how integral Shakespeare was to your educational development, but maybe we should start with Shakespeare and his relationship with the theater and what you've found there. Well, you know, that the, the, the instigating thing that happened with me in deciding to write my book was that I had been an English and t- teacher and who did plays, you know, for several years in high school and saw I, I was in it was an inner, inner city school and a lot of the students it was a small inner city school a magnet school and many of my students had never even seen a play you know so we would start the semester and I'd say we're going to put on a Shakespearean play what's a play. Mm. You know? yeah. And who's some of them thought Shakespeare was my father because I had recordings of my father reading Shakespeare. Right. So they thought they thought Portia was a car. A car. Cars sure. back then with Julius. <laughs> you know, I, that's that's the level that my students were at. Yeah. And I would just watch them absolutely blossom. Mm. And they loved loved doing the plays. And what was fascinating to me was that. Very often, the uh, I had a lot of non-English speakers, you know, Hispanic kids mainly, and uh, they were in the language acquisition mode already. Mm. So they would learn uh, Shakespeare to them was just like learning a Philadelphia accent, you know, right. it, was, it was easy, yeah. and they would be the first to learn it and the ones who understood it the best because their brains were language triggered, oh, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Like we should all be so lucky. Yeah, and so they. They were great. That was, it was great for them. And I had a lot of kids who were in the ninth and 10th grade and were still not reading above a third grade level. And they could do Shakespeare. You know, they'd learn the lines and they, and then I'd see the impact in English classes. So there were all sorts of ways that these, I, I saw these kids who were doing these plays were improving across the board in all of their academic subjects, certainly in the subject I taught them. Mm. And, um, so I thought, well, there's a trigger there. But then I was reading Soul of the Age, Shakespeare's Life by, oh, I forget his name right now. Um, it's, a, it's a great biography, by the way. It's fantastic. But he mentioned, in the chapter on his education, he mentioned um, the colloquies and that they were very funny. They were by Erasmus and they were very funny. And I thought, hmm, well, I should read those colloquies. Well, I grew up loving Shakespeare, but mainly I loved the colloquial characters, you know, the barmaids and the clowns and the sassy women and the, and the prostitutes and the, and the thieves and Falstaff and all of the funny ones. They're, they're the ones I loved. And of course, the handsome princes and stuff like that. But mainly I love those funny ones. So, so I thought, well, I should read these colloquies. I ordered them and I started reading them and I thought, oh my God. God, has nobody ever read these things? Because so many of Shakespeare's characters come right out of the colloquies, like almost word for word. Take a quick break here. This is where our conversation got cut off. Robin was starting to tell me about her reading of Erasmus's colloquies, which were Latin exercises, dialogues to be read by students learning Latin, which were used all over Europe, and which Shakespeare would have read in his school. In fact, he would have performed these along with his fellow students. And I think you can say that later, 
Shakespeare breathed life into the colloquies by including them in his plays in that special way that geniuses have of taking what they need and taking a little bit here and a little bit there and turning it all into magic. But we can also say, perhaps, that before the years when Shakespeare breathed life into the colloquies, the colloquies breathed life into him. We'll let Robin tell the story. We pick things up where Robin is telling us about the colloquies and Shakespeare's education. And listeners, I want you to listen for two moments that I'm going to talk about later. Two things that made me love the Lithgos. We'll talk about that at the end. Okay, so I want to get the name of the book here. I've got it. I think it was by Jonathan Bate. Does that sound right? Yeah, Soul yeah, of the yeah, Age, yeah. a biography yeah. of the mind of William Shakespeare. So you were, just to kind of summarize, you were reading that book. It pointed you toward these colloquies by Erasmus. And when you dug into those, you started seeing these connections through uh, your knowledge of the plays and especially some of the characters that you loved so much. And it pointed you toward some discoveries that maybe had not been made before, or you were having a hard time finding if anyone had made these connections before. So why don't we proceed from there? Okay. I realized then there's just dozens and dozens of, of connections that you, you find between yeah. the scenes, specific characters, specific lines, you know, in the colloquies that made me realize that Shakespeare was performing those colloquies when he was a kid. They weren't translated into English. He performed in Latin. Yeah. So obviously he was pretty good at Latin. But when you say performed um, them, do you mean like with a teacher in a classroom, or are you talking about uh, performances no. like on a stage? No, no, they would have been. They, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. But I assume they would have been classroom performances. Yeah. And the students, you know, the classes were huge. They had a teacher and a and a prepositor who had been a, a, an older student and an usher or two ushers, depending on the size. So there were maybe three people that you could recite to. The kids would have worked it out, worked out the scenes on their own, and they probably even wrote plays. They did mm. write plays. Yeah. For instance, I'm absolutely certain that he, the first draft of Taming the Shrew was a, was a collaboration of a bunch of silly schoolboys yeah. in Stratford. But, um, but he would have performed them for probably an older student or an usher. They wouldn't have been... They, they were kind of like extracurricular activities. You got to do colloquies if you finished all your other Cicero kind of thing. Yeah. Don, and then I started learning about physical rhetoric a lot. I mean, rhetoric was originally a good man speaking well. It was a rhetor was a speaker, not a writer. Mm. So it's, rhetoric's origin was in oral language. Rhetoric was about performance, and you realize that he was at the end of two thousand years, where most of education was oral, and you had to keep an enormous amount in your head. And in order to be a statesperson or a persuasive businessman or a clergyman or a courtier, you had to be able to hold court. You had to speak well, brilliantly. You had to know how to use rhetorical devices brilliantly. Otherwise, you were completely irrelevant. You know, mm. you just didn't matter to anybody. So rhetoric was huge and the combination of rhetoric and the colloquies, 
I thought, oh my God, these kids were on their feet reciting. They also had to recite their lessons every day, you know, every week. They'd memorize about ten lines per week of some of the of their class of the classic poetry they were reading, and they had to recite that. So that was, and you didn't just stand up and bobble. You had to recite it, you know, using your entire body and your emotional range and everything. Mm. So there was enormous amount of training in presentation and. Who, every little boy who went to a Latin grammar school in England, which was all, but, I mean, Henry VIII had increased the, Latin, the literacy enormously. So all across England, there was a Latin grammar school. So there were literally tens of thousands of little boys learning rhetoric and reading colloquies mm. and performing every day. And I, in my experience, performance really, really does improve cognition and empathy. Yeah. I saw my students hugely improve. Mostly, mostly, you know, uh, a lot of Hispanic and, Latin and 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 Black American students who would just overnight turn into great English students. And my, I'd have them both in English and in, in theater because I it was a small school, and I would just see this amazing love for literature and reading mm. and and this and poetry. I mean, I had kids who were they you know gang 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 kids. And I would, I, I once took them to a play, I, I would take them to a lot of plays. I took them a play that was all based on love letters of the romantics in the 19th century. You couldn't be more alien from the African-American experience from the 19th century romantics from England, right? Yeah. But, and, and Russia, Tchaikovskyism. These kids, they would line up at my door, because I, I had run off copies of the poems from the play. They would line up at my door begging me to make Xerox copies of these for them. Yeah. They, they were so into poetry. And I just thought it, I, it was a unique position for me to be a person well-versed in the classics, but teaching African-American and, and English, English learners and seeing it just light up their minds. Yeah. And a lot of them went to college and did very well. It was so clear to me that performance skills really profoundly increase cognition and empathy yeah. and and presentation you know yeah. ability ability to speak in public and to speak convincingly all of that yeah some of the things i think we associate with the theater you know learning vocabulary and memorization and public speaking and having confidence and and that kind of thing but it sounds like what you were unlocking was something even deeper which is the experience someone might have in looking at a situation and saying, here is a person who wants something he cannot have, and how is he going to try to get it? Or here is a person who is afraid of something, or who is afraid of everyone learning the truth about this person. Or it's more like human situations, and as you say, empathy that is coming out of this experience people have in either watching plays or playing the parts themselves and it sounds like you've connected that all the way back from what a young Shakespeare may have learned and his generation of students to the students that you had in Los Angeles uh, in much more recent times. Right, exactly. And it wasn't just Shakespeare, of course. The oral tradition of education goes way, 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 way back. Yeah. And the teaching of rhetoric goes way back. So I just connected it to the literary brilliance of the day because people talk about the golden age of literature. And it really is a Astounding when you think of it that before 1585 there was nothing but popular, you know, usually kind of scatological 
silly poetry, written, romantic poetry written in, in English. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were some sonnets, but um, not much. And then along comes uh, Sidney. Uh, and Mulcaster, who was one of the, sh- the teacher of Shakespeare's teachers, and Mulcaster used theater every single day in his teaching. He used to, he, he trained students in performance skills, and he and he had them perform. They performed at court. A lot of a lot of the uh, lat- of the uh, Latin schoolboys performed at uh, Christmas and at uh, Shrovetide. Uh, they would perform Latin play, or they would perform in English or Latin, but for the public. And a lot of them even had had theaters in built into their schools. Certainly, the Merchant Taylor School, where Mulcaster taught, did. So there were a lot of playwriting schoolmasters. But Mulcaster happened to write a book about pedagogy, which mm. is an absolutely appallingly difficult book to read because he didn't <laughs> write. He wrote in English, although he was a scholar. But he he wasn't. Nobody was writing in English back then, and there was no you know, guide to good English. They, yeah. they're, they're really difficult to read. But but he goes into great detail about how to speak loud and soft, how to laugh, how, how to cry and speak. You know, he, he goes into tremendous detail on performance skills, even so far as, you know, training kids to fill their mouths with rocks and, mm. and recite yeah. language through rock the way. The way, um, what's the name of the ancient origin? The, yeah, yeah, did. Yes, exactly. You, you know your stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so very, very similar skills in training actors today. You know, mm-hmm. the same thing actors did, you know, starting very, very long going up. You see actors doing the same things, the same exercises now yeah. that Mulcaster had his students doing in the 15. Um, 60s and 70s and 80s. So uh, obviously, students were getting a ton of theater, and I think that's why that that age of genius. Oh, I, that, what I was saying was, before 1580, there was 1585. There was very little poetry written. Then you have Sydney, and then you have all these playwrights come along. Mm. I mean, there's there's yeah. 35 of them who were many. I, 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 when Shakespeare died, he he was. I don't know if you saw my speech, but he was pretty much forgotten. He, his, he was like old, old, yeah. like an old grandpa. When when Ben Johnson died, because he wrote plays up to his the very end and, and never retired, there was mourning in the streets. There were parades in the streets. They shut down England. There was, you know, there were, people were wailing. He was way, 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 way more famous than Shakespeare. Mm. And that didn't change until the end of the century when, and then, of course, in the in the nineteenth century, they had these big Shakespeare competitions, and he just it, he just took over the the canon. Yeah. And so you, you, people get the idea he was the only playwright of the time, but he was not only the, not the only one; he was not even the most famous. Yeah, a whole generation Marlo. who had a similar education. It sounds like. Exactly. Mm. They all went through those Latin grammar schools. They all got that training. Yeah. They all started writing in in school. In looking at education today, which you've done and, and has been kind of a, a career for you, uh, do you feel like we're, are we are we swimming against the stream? Does it feel like just one budget cut after another? Do you feel like you're a voice in the wilderness kind of howling? Or do you see some ups and downs over the years? Or how do you assess our use of performative arts in education? I, I definitely feel like I'm swimming upstream. And I definitely feel like a voice in the wilderness, although... There's a huge, huge teacher resistance to our testing culture, mm, and mm-hmm. it is beginning to weaken. Of course, we know that, but it is still dominant. Yeah. And 
I just don't get it. I mean, there's nothing about testing, nothing that improves a student's ability to think or improves ability to love learning, which is, I think, the only purpose for school is to engender a lifelong <sighs> lust for knowledge. Yeah. That's the only reason to go to school as far as I'm concerned. Now, right. that, of course, is not true. But it is, it is numero uno. Yeah. I, I just think that the formative years, you know, kindergarten through sixth grade, there should be no testing. Uh, it's it, it's antith- antithetical to love of learning. Mm. It, and it, it serves no purpose. Today, you don't, you don't need facts. You can get facts at your fingertips with an iPhone. But what you need is the ability to structure the infinity of facts that are at your fingertips, Mm, to give mm -hmm. give context to them, and to have the kind of brain that can value the facts and sort them and prove them and disprove them and debate them, etc. That's what you need in education, and that's what Shakespeare's education gave him. Mm. And I personally don't believe he hated school. I mean, there's, of course, everybody hates school. I hated school. We all don't like to get up in the morning and go to school. But, yeah. but I think he had a lot of fun at school. And I, and I also think, don't think school was nearly as grueling as they say, because first of all, they got two hours for lunch every day, because they all, they had to go home for lunch. So they, they had from, from 11 to 1 every single day free, or maybe they're helping their fathers in the stores, but, they also had an hour of physical education every day. Mm. So that's three hours a day out of that long, long day where they were on their feet. And in addition to that, he was on his feet reciting, performing, doing colloquies, writing plays. I think it was a pretty rigorous but actually engaging education. Um, I, I, I would dispute the people who say it was just drill and kill all Dark day. And it dull. just wasn't. Yeah. 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 But it could have been. And and that I mean, that's where we're headed now. It it seems like with the testing regime. And I'll tell you, I had the experience when I graduated from college years and years ago, I went and taught in Taiwan and they were, you know, it's hard to blame different countries for where they are on the scale of these things. They were trying to to make sure, you know, they were fighting an existential battle and they wanted their young people to be able to pass tests and be educated and all of that. But it had just become this world where young children were cramming for these tests and having these long hours of nothing but drilling uh, facts and figures and, and you know, uh, memorization and, and the different subjects and everything. And as I came in as an English teacher... I had some room to do things with them like write creative stories or, you know, put together a novel as a class and and do plays and things like that. And you could just see them opening up like flowers, you know, like uh, flowers that that were turning to the sun. It just you could just you could see it in them that they needed to do it and that they were growing and they were more enthusiastic about it. And and luckily, the parents loved it because they would look at the results and say, oh, wow, my my child wrote, you know, 50 pages in English. And I would look at it and say it was not difficult to have this. You know, I only assigned him five pages and he did the other 45 on his own because he was so excited about this story he was coming up with. And you could just see the growth that would come from something 
outside of the the rote memorization and and the uh, uh, preparing for the te- for the next test. And it does seem like we've really gotten that out. I think because tests are something that are measurable, and if people are hostile to the idea of teachers or education, they they assume that we have to measure it in order to make sure that it's actually happening or something. And you you really are making a persuasive case for me that theater needs to be an integral part of what we expose our children to during their school day. Absolutely. Every day. Every day. Yeah. I mean, not just theater, of the, the arts. The music is yeah. also incredibly important. Right. Connecting to math. And uh, that's another performance skill. I mean, I, music and theater and dance are the performative skills. They're, they're all very, very important. I used to, I remember a, when I was a theater specialist, I would go in and watch my teachers teach, and then I would talk to their, their the teachers who, the classroom teachers who they worked with. I remember one saying, oh, you have no idea how much easier it is to teach math after they've had dance. Mm, yeah. And I said, <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. I I could even put it into words, you know. Yeah. It's time-space continuum. It's, it's dan- Dance is a, a tremendous support to mathematics. And And the other thing I want to say to parents out there who are making these decisions and and helping their school boards make these decisions is we do have a value on team sports. And my kids play sports and my nephew has gotten the theater bug. And as I've been talking to my sister about our children who are about the same age, it's made me realize how much that what we say we value in team sports he's getting from his theatrical experience that he's he's learning teamwork he's learning uh the importance of practice and how that can pay off in performance he's dealing with disappointment and frustration when he doesn't get the part or when something doesn't go his way and all of those things are things that we say you know team sports are essential for this for a growing child and theater can provide those same lessons as well as can dance and music but mm. theater has has the extra quality of being about story. Yeah. And I think that our brains, my little bit of research and all the cascading evidence coming out of cognitive research now, um, our brains are wired to story. And theater is story. It's, mm. That's what yeah. it is. Ah. So uh, it, it has that added advantage. Beautiful. Okay, we're coming to the end here, but I have a surprise bonus question for you. Oh, good. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. I hope I can answer it. <laughs> One day, you're wandering backstage at a theater and encounter an old trunk filled with props. One of them is a dusty lamp. Laughing and making jokes about genies, you rub the side of the lamp with your shirt sleeve, and to your surprise, a figure floats out. Robin, she says, I am the genie of the theater. You have been granted one wish, only the rules are very strict about what you are allowed to choose. You have been living a selfless life, and it's time for you to be selfish. We will grant you the right to produce one play. You can either produce a play performed by the greatest actors in the world, and you can include an amateur child in the production, or you can produce a play that will be performed by amateur children, and you can select one of the greatest actors in the world to be a part of the production. Which option do you choose and why? Off the top of my head? Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's say let's say Henry the Fourth Part One. Yeah. And ask my bro to play Falstaff. Okay. And then you're gonna populate it with amateur children? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you. He's actually a, a terrific <laughs> guy. Uh, yeah, I had to do that off the top of my head. I'm not even sure I, oh. I would give that. Uh, I, part one is probably, probably in the end, my favorite play. Yeah. Because of Hal and Falstaff, you know. Yeah. And, has, and, your, uh, has your brother and jo- played Falstaff before? No, he's oh. never played Falstaff, and he would love to play Falstaff. Oh. He's played Lear. I feel like we should make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a children's production. Boy, would that ever be cool. There's a <laughs> fantastic teacher. Do you have a minute more to ramble? Or Oh, yes, absolutely. There's a fantastic teacher in L.A. For years, he taught a fifth-grade class in an inner-city school in Koreatown, and every year he put on a full-length Shakespeare play, a different one each year. Hmm. And they were wonderful. And not, not only did the kids perform it, every kid in the play, and I would go while he was doing the rehearsal, uh, Rafe, Rafe Esquith is his name, Rafe Esquith. You can look him up. He's written several plays. Okay. Every kid in his class, learns every line from the play that they're doing that year. So if mm. you walk into the class during the day, take one kid aside, and they'll just start reciting the play. Yeah. I mean, he, he cuts them. They're, they're only about an hour and a half long. But the kids can recite every line in the cut version. Right. And every kid in his class has to learn a musical instrument. Um, so it's a, a, they, the plays are done with music. And they, they it's usually rock songs, old rock songs that he finds that that refer to one aspect of the play. So they, they have a rock band and a Shakespeare performance and they're just amazing, amazing, amazing. And they did, I can't remember if he just did part one or if he put the two of them together. Right, right. Um, The Falstaff, uh, like Orson Welles did. Yeah. At the end where Falstaff, I know you not old man. Do you know that line? Mm -hmm. Yep. Every eye in the house, was wet. It was so moving. These children, when Falstaff is rejected, everybody wept. Yeah. That summer, I went to New York and stayed with my brother, and he got the last remaining ticket to see it at the music center with John's old nemesis, that other actor who gets all the parts before he gets them. <laughs> uh, I'll think of it. I've forgotten his name. I, I probably because I resent him, but he's a friend of John's. Anyway, he played Falstaff <laughs> at the at the Kennedy Center, at the Lincoln Center, excuse me, at the yeah. Lincoln Center in New York. And John got me the last remaining ticket. He didn't say anything. He'd seen it. He said, I'll be interested to know what you think. And it was absolutely sold out. You could not get a ticket. He went over there every single day. He knew I was coming. He walked, he lived near there. He walked over every single day to see if there'd been a return ticket. And one day he got one and I got to see it and I was so excited. Yeah. And I would say that uh, his performance was flawless, but I didn't shed a tear. Mm. I didn't shed a tear. It was too perfect. Oh. It wasn't, it wasn't fault the false. False staff has to be, he can't be perfect. Yeah. You just can't. Was this, uh, um, was this Kevin Klein? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, Kevin Klein. Did you see that yeah. performance? No, I didn't. But I, I guessed when you said that uh, he and your brother are uh, often considered for the same parts. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's a perfect, they, he's a perfect actor. He's brilliant. He's, I could imagine, I, I can kind of envision what you're talking about, that he's... It was surgical precision. It yeah, was just yeah. perfect. And it was un feeling. I didn't have any 
emotion. Yeah. And I maybe it's because I had just seen such a such a moving performance by Rafe's kids. Mm-hmm. But um, oh, I, I went. I, I was. I was crushed. I was so disappointed because I. I live for great. Sh- you know, when I can see a great Shakespeare production, I'm in ecstasy. Yeah, and and it needed some vulnerability or some some pathos that wasn't there because the acting was so good. Yeah, and I can't even tell you what it needed. It, yeah, Ethan Hawke yeah. was also in it. Played Hotspur, and that was. Yeah. disturbing too because at the very beginning you know it starts out with Henry the fourth saying so beaten as we are so one with care so yeah that that sad sad soliloquy at the beginning of the play and Ethan Hawke is placed above him and looking down on him you, you never place a character above a king and and storming like a like a hawk mm. you know walking back and forth watching the king recite this painful speech angrily watching him and it, it was so jarring i i just hated the production but it got great reviews boy mm. people flocked to it well you know what i find very touching is that you i gave you the entire world of actors and the one that you chose was your brother and you obviously have a very high bar for what you expect out of your fall staff and you have the confidence in him that he will be able to bring that kind of a, a performance to bear yeah. yeah. Mm. Well, I agree. I mean, I, I think he's amazing. And I, I have been astounded uh, that the uh, I think everybody probably comes to him in a different way, different generations. You know, some probably today maybe know him first from the children's books he's read or that kind of thing. For me, he was the uh, the father in Footloose. That was the <laughs> I'm a child of the <laughs> 80s. And so that was kind of uh for me, he's always been, oh, there's the, uh, the the dad in Footloose, the guy who shut down the town and, and prevented dancing, but came around at the end. And and uh, But yet, when I see him play Winston Churchill or uh, the other parts that I've seen him in, um, I do feel like he can just take me anywhere he wants me to go. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a wonderful actor. I have a funny story about the Churchill, because I was binge-watching. I don't have a television, so I watch everything on the computer and my husband and I were binge watching Churchill. I think we we watched three three episodes, and I had just watched, you know, the episode with the with the portrait. And the phone rang, and it was the night before the election. And John and I often confer on the down ballot before the election, just mm. because mm-hmm. neither of us does our research thoroughly. So we yeah we sort of do last minute cramming right right. <laughs> so we spent about a half an hour going over the down ballot and it didn't even occur to me to say I've just been watching you play Churchill because it's right. the only time that he completely disappeared in a role. I always see John. I always see my little brother. Yeah. In every role, but I didn't see him in Churchill. He just he just he just became another person. So wow. I, it was hilarious. I had to call him back the next day and say, "By the way, <laughs> I had just Put down the television when you called. Yeah, did he walk away? Did he take that as the greatest compliment you could give him, or did he feel like, um, boy, my big sister? uh, Yeah, right. Oh, well, these stories are wonderful. I wish I could, uh, wish we had more time to talk, but this has been fantastic. Robin Lithgow, thank you so much for joining me today on the history of literature. And I'm so looking forward to looking at some of your older 
posts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope they hold up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that fantastic? My thanks to Robin Lithgow for joining me and for all the years she's spent advancing the cause of arts and education. I told you there were two moments I wanted to talk to you about. One I told my wife about. My wife and I hardly ever talk about the podcast. We have so many other things going on with kids and school and work and health concerns and everything else. But I told her about Robin and John calling each other to talk about the down-ballot races. Is there anything better than that? Man, the civic duty, the respect. Here's John Lithgow. He could be sitting on a beach somewhere, drinking himself into a stupor and bossing people around, and here he is calling his sister to make sure he knows which judges and school board members and city council persons deserve his vote. And she's doing the same. That's awesome. A brother and sister trusting each other, checking in. And the other story I love is him going to the Lincoln Center every day to try to get her a ticket to Henry IV, which is sold out. Wouldn't you expect him to send someone else or just not to bother? And instead, he runs over there every day to get his big sister a ticket to a play he wants her to see just amazing. I told my wife these stories and she said, are they from the Midwest? Yep, they're from Ohio. So maybe that's part of it. And maybe we can also say, as I sort of said at the beginning, that they're not only from Ohio, just like I'm not only from Wisconsin and Mike's not only from Manhattan and Margo's not only from Scotland and Thomas and Ron aren't only from Australia and Blake's not only from New Orleans. We also come from the land of literature, and we look out for one another. Sometimes we get a little carried away, but that's perfectly fine. That's allowed. The History of Literature is part of the Podglomerate Podcasting Network, www.thepodglomerate.com, and Lidhub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sonic Universe.